It was flashing at me earlier, so hopefully it'll be all right. The ongoing saga with this lovely mic. Um, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. Glad you guys are here. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, we are going to dive into Matthew here in a second, but just an aside before we uh, begin, uh, we are, this is something a lot of you guys are aware of, maybe some of you not so much, but uh, we are uh, a growing church. I think that this past six months or so, we have grown and changed quite a bit. A lot of you guys have started attending Hiawatha even the past few weeks, if not all the way back to September, and uh, it's a great thing. We love that as a young, uh, growing church, reaching people. People aren't Christians yet. People are barely believers, just want to know more about their Bibles and Christ, and we love that. And people are already Christians, seasoned, you know, Christians, whatever that means. But um, we love that too. And, but we, wa- we want you guys to know that our culture here is, uh, some of you guys are just checking out the church, and that's great. But for those of you who are calling this home, and a part of our culture here is involvement. We, we are highly, gathering as a church like this is super important, but being a Christian is much more. It's about community. It's about scattering as well with the best news in the world, bringing that to lost people. And it's about friendships in the church. And so if you guys don't know anybody yet, you know, just understand our culture is that we want to invite you into the family and to know people, know at least a few people and to have deep, sacrificial, generous friendships that are authentic and ones that you can confess sin in and grow in your knowledge of Christ in. And so we have community groups and other forms of, of community. Many things are organic. Many things are a little more programmatic and, and uh, straight line. But lots of things that we want to pursue you guys and invite you to. But please don't wait for that to uh, ask us how you can get involved and talk to Spencer about everything. And me too. But <laughs> talk to Spencer about community groups. Especially he can answer all your questions. Especially about that's the big thing that we do is uh, community groups. But there are a lot of other things too. But um, if I just understand that about our culture. Some of you guys may have been involved in churches that never actually invited you to be a part of the mission, a part of the community, a part of spreading the gospel around the world. And that's just a big piece to what we do. And so if you're newer to the church, uh, consider that. Pray about that and, and talk to us if you want some more info about that. So, all right. Well, we're going to dive right in today to uh, Matthew uh, 15. It's part of our Greater Sermon series that we've been in for over a year now. And I finally last week got to lay out the rest of the series. And it depends on what we do this summer. I'm taking a sabbatical this summer. A lot of you guys uh, weren't, maybe weren't aware of that yet, but most of you are, I think. But Depends on what we do preaching-wise this summer. If we keep going with it, we'll finish by Christmas, (laughs) so another year. If we don't, it's going to be like a a two-and-a-half-year series. But um, anyway, that's by design. We knew it was going to take us a while, and there's a lot of value to that. I talked to someone last week, actually, who said they just enjoy expositional preaching, expositional meaning just A to Z, looking verse by verse, chapter by chapter, passage by passage through a book, because you can see related themes in narrative. And if you just preach topically and it kind of jump around. There's, there's places for that too, but if you do that, you can't really see common themes and threads. And Matthew's been full of that. It's a story. The whole Bible's a story. It's not randomly uh, aligned uh, laws or precepts or, or stories or, or characters or events. It's not designed that way. God is telling us a story in the Bible with a climax. That climax is Christ. And when you, So when you read a, a portion of that or a subset of that, like a narrative like the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, you see common threads that the author, God, the ultimate author, is seeking to, uh, to say to us. So that's been uh, a lot of fun. I hope for you guys. It's been fun for me. Hopefully I know for a lot of you it has as well. And, and uh, yeah, we'll see a lot more of that uh, play out today and in the coming weeks. But today we're going to look at the feeding of the 4,000. Not to be confused with the feeding of the 5,000. We looked at uh, just five or six weeks ago. And I'll talk about some of the differences here in just a second. But Jesus has been declaring and demonstrating the gospel or good news of the kingdom. So basically what Jesus has been doing is pronouncing and demonstrating with his actions the fact that God is here in flesh. Jesus is the Son of God. He's basically saying, I am here 
to usher in the ultimate reign of God's rule in a dead and dying world. God has been staying committed to his creation after Adam and Eve and all creation with them fell into sin and rebelled against God and worshipped themselves. That's what sin is. It's a a turning in on the self. There are many forms to that, but effectively, that's what sin is. It's a self-worship. It's a turning in on the self and becoming a law unto ourselves, and in the process, slapping God in the face and rejecting him, rebelling, taking up arms against the creator. But God, in his love and compassion, though that brings judgment, he's staying committed to the fact that he was a loving God as well in, in loving us. The pinnacle of his creation, human beings who were made in his image, became like one of us to die in our place. And that's huge. When we talk about the kingdom of God and God's mission, the fact that God became one of us tells us a ton about his mission. Because God did not have to become like one of us just to teach us how to become better human beings. He could have just done that, right? But the fact that God became one of us tells us that he became one of us, as the Bible says, to die as one of us in our place. So God's kingdom is all, has everything to do with substitution. It's everything to do with God becoming like those that he wants to advocate for and die as one of. And that's what he does. So, so when we talk about the kingdom of God, this, is, this has a cross, an empty tomb bent to it. Everything in the Bible is about that, including these earlier portions of the gospel accounts. That's our interpretational paradigm because that's the Bible's interpretational paradigm. We read the Bible in the way the Bible reads itself. It always reads itself as though everything is oriented and being drawn up into the head, Ephesians 1.10, which is Christ. Everything's about it. Whether it's a shadowy principle or an explicit preposition, everything's about that. So we're still pre-cross here. For those of you who are newer to the Bible or newer to Hiawatha, that's important to understand as we go into passages like today which is narrative, which is more of a a demonstration of these truths, not necessarily a flat-out proclamation of these truths or explicit one. These are more implicit ones. Understand that these are our shadows. These are hints of the greater greater reality. So we have to have that trajectory or we miss really what God is trying to say to us in it. All right. So with those things said, let's uh, read here. Matthew 15, 32 to 39 is today's passage, the feeding of the 4,000. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. All right, so today what we're going to do is I just want to make a couple of broad observations about this uh, that, that are still very important, maybe not quite as important as the specific observations, but we'll move to the specific here in uh, just a few minutes. But just help us get our bearings. A couple of broad things going on here that especially you'll probably be a little more keen on if you've been here and, and you've been reading with us these, some of these themes already in Matthew. But the first observation is we've seen this before, Right? Just like a few chapters before. So just actually in the previous chapter, Matthew 14, verses 13 to 21, which would have been uh, pretty recently, and there's a lot of white space here, of course, too, so it wasn't like just yesterday necessarily from the disciples' perspective, but not too far in the distant past, Jesus had done this basically the same miracle for a bunch of Jews, 5,000 people plus women and children. So the women and children are counted here. So they're basically 10,000 people roughly 
in each of these miracles. So have that in mind as well. But in chapter 14, verses 13 to 21, Jesus did this exact same miracle. He sat people down. He saw them in their distress. It actually says the same thing here in the first verse about his compassion for them. He had compassion on them that they were hungry, and he was unwilling to send them away that they might faint on the way. And they had been eating up to this point, but there's crowds that are gathered around Christ who have been just wanting. They're actually, in a lot of ways, it's kind of cool because they're seeing Christ as a little bit more important than their food, but they're following him out into these desolate places, into wilderness areas, listening to his teaching, and they're hungry. And the disciples notice this. Jesus notices this first, but there's just no food available, and that's the context for the whole miracle, which we'll get to here in a second. But we've seen this before, and this is really important to understand. We talked about repetition last week in reference to healings, and the same principles really apply here today. We can look at repetition like this in the Bible, especially ones like this that are, that are very repetitious, that are, that are clearly borrowing terms from each other and are meant to be more of an overlay. You could say that when Jesus heals people, when he heals lepers, when he raises the dead, when he heals cripples and the deaf, that there's a lot of similarities there in that he's just physically healing people. But this is like another level, right? I mean, this is, there are thousands of people, they're gathered, they're hungry, he has compassion, and there's actually the same food present. He breaks bread and fish, which would have been a common meal, but still, the fact that it's mentioned. There's a lot more overlay here, too. So we can look at repetition, especially with things like this in the gospel accounts, and Really, you can go one of two ways. One, you can say, it's a mistake. There must have been only one story here, but later it was recorded differently and later understood by Christians as two events. So it's important for us to blend the narrative and conclude that it only happened once historically. Or a version of that perspective would say, you could say there are two stories, but we know uh, that what we know about Jesus and about the miracle from the one. So we can read that into the other one. So when you get to the feeding of the 4,000, it's, it's kosher just to skip over it and, and remember what you had just read and, and move on. That's a perspe- couple of versions on the one perspective, but the other perspective that is preferred, that values repetition, sees intentionality in it, is to say they are two stories. And God values repetition in the Bible to make points of emphasis theologically. In this case, among other things, God wants us to know that he's compassionate. And so, of course, he's going to tell it to us more than once, sometimes a lot more than that, if you take all the scriptures into consideration. And he wants us to know that he nourishes the faint. These are wonderfully loving things we learn about God, and it's great that we learn them more than once. I mean, like a parent saying to his child, I love you more than once, or a husband to a wife, I love you more than once. For the sake of emphasis, God is doing that here in the story. In this case, too, in these two cases with the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000, in this case, the similarities and the differences, and there are differences, help tell a greater story that we're going to see play out here a little bit today, but more in the coming weeks. Because Jesus actually references both of these events as separate events a little bit later in the narrative. It's one of the stronger arguments, strongest arguments, for the fact that these two are distinct historical and theological events that occurred in history and just looked very much like each other, because Jesus refers to them as that. He didn't say there's one event, but he refers to the two feedings uh, in, uh, as, as separate events. All right, that's the first thing. We've seen this before. The second thing is uh, there are differences. Like I said before, there are differences here. Not going to go through all of those today. It's not the point here. It's easy to get lost in the details. I don't want to do that uh, today. But I do want to highlight one major difference between this miracle and the feeding of the 5,000, and that is Jesus' location. He's in a different place here, and the type of people being fed are different as well. In the former miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, 
Jesus is feeding the Jews among the grass. In today's passage, he's in a desolate place in the wilderness, and he's feeding Gentiles. It's a very important distinction to make. There's a bit of a progression here. Remember where we've been in recent weeks as well. Jesus has been teaching a lot on these matters, in chapter 15 in particular, teaching about how the gospel, and this is a very subtle thing, it's easy to miss sometimes, but also very clear, a little bit more clear in a passage like today, when he's just doing a miracle for non-Jews, for thousands and thousands of Gentiles. Uh, But remember where we've been. He's been teaching on these things, demonstrating them with his actions, and in the middle of what a lot of people call his Gentile tour. He's been interacting with and healing many Gentiles, and today, just caring for them and feeding them miraculously. So the point is, we said this last week, we talked about the Canaanite or this Gentile woman who had a daughter who was demonized and went and begged Jesus for her healing. Talked about this last week too, but the greater point here as we span back a bit to the greater scriptures is that God's work through the Jews in the Old Testament was just a harbinger of a greater global reality. It was not the reality itself. This is being demonstrated. The, the, the scriptures teach us, even in the Old Testament, there's hope for this being proclaimed through the prophets and even before them as well, much earlier in history. So this is, much, this is very clear in the Old Testament too, but it's being demonstrated here uh, as well. That after Jesus Christ, this is yet to come, but after he dies on a cross for our sins, the gospel of that salvation goes out from the Jews to the rest of the world, quite quickly, in fact. And so in a way, then, we're getting a glimpse of that here in these two stories. Ahead of time, in Matthew 14 to 15, with the inclusion of these things, bookended, basically, with a couple of other Gentile interacting kind of things Jesus is doing. So here's the point. This is not just history. It's theology. And more than that, it's doxology. I mean, this this is a place where we stop and praise and give God glory. If you're not Jewish... Or even if you are, you have reason to pause here and thank God that this happened. That God had this type of compassion for non-Jewish people. That the prophets in the Old Testament spoke of a day when the day of salvation would come not just for Jewish people, but for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We've got to stop here and pause and thank God this happened. And more than that, that Jesus had compassion on us, not just in our hunger, but in our spiritual hunger. As Peter was talking about earlier, in our sin and fed us, as we sang before, with his body. Fed us with his broken body on the cross, which is the greater miracle. It is the greater feeding. So this story is a hint, and the cross is, is the reality, which is going to really take us in now to the, the rest of our time. We're going to look at some specific observations here that's going to play. That's the overarching umbrella to this story is the greater feeding, the greater miracle that Jesus has his eyes set on. He has his eyes set on Jerusalem. That's a, a biblical phrase here that we've already seen. Luke's actually more clear on that, another one, another one of the gospel accounts. But as he's doing this, he has his eyes set on Jerusalem. He knows where he's going. He knows where his mission's taking him. He's feeding people, but he has his eyes set on Jerusalem where he's going to go feed the 4,000, the 5,000 in much greater capacity. He's going to feed the nations for all of history. So that's, that's the drama, the dramatic bent to all of this. And that's really true. We are to read the scriptures this way. It's with this dramatic bent to them to see that Christ is basically a feeder of souls and that the cross is basically him doing the same thing for us. So let's look at this now and unpack some of these uh, details, the specific observations. So as we move then into the, the first uh, couple of verses, verses 32, actually just verse 32, 
we see something great about Christ, great about God. Jesus' compassion here, and especially over and against the disciples' lack of concern for the people, but especially the compassion of Christ. Look at verse 32 again. Slow down and look at what this says. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. So this is so great on so many levels. I think it's wonderfully indicative of our current state, our current state, before a holy and loving God. We are faint, we are hungry spiritually, faint spiritually, and in a desolate place, spiritually speaking. But God sees us. This is what he's like in the Bible. And not just sees us, but has compassion on us, not to send us away faint and hungry. Not for our harm, but for our benefit. We all need to hear this today, but it's probably true that some of you in particular have never thought about God this way in your entire life. Or need to be reminded of this today. That God is like this. That he sees us, sees you in your distress, and he has compassion on you to help you from it. That he is unwilling to send you away from your current state as being faint before him, as being full of sin, as being a rebel, as being banished from him. Isn't that a wonderful picture of God? Just pause there. I mean, that's like, we could stop right there and just say, that's it. This is what, this is what the Bible is telling us today, is this is what God is like. He's not willing to send us away in our current condition. A lot of you guys uh, make and keep New Year's resolutions, and that's great. But especially focus on the fact that biblically, God is resolved to save you. He's, res- he's made a resolution to never fail and never be unfaithful to you ever. And that is to, to save wretched sinners like us, broken people like us. He's not careless. I don't think by default we think about God this way. We might acknowledge him, but we think that he's careless. He might acknowledge us to a degree, but he's waiting to see how we live our lives. And then there's some interaction with him on the last day. But it's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he has come into the world. He has initiated with us. He's become a human being. He is unwilling to send us away as sinners, as wretches, as broken people, as spiritually hungry. This is what God is like. I mean, it's something to put your finger on and say, praise God that this is the case. This is what the creator of the universe, the the biblical God, is. And it sets the stage for everything we're going to read after this uh, as as well. So praise God for that, that that we don't approach him, but he approaches us. That we don't bother him, but he comes in love and compassion to us to to feed him, to feed us. Glory to God. All right, let's keep going here. The next thing we see in the the drama of the passage is the disciples see this as a hopeless situation, bar none. They look at the situation and say it's impossible. In verse 33, the disciples said to Jesus, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? So they see the crowds, they see the hunger, they see the, the issue and the available food and basically conclude that this is not possible. I mean, to, to remedy the situation, we have to go elsewhere to get enough bread and fish and drink to satisfy the crowds and make it so they don't have to leave to get food and they can stay with Christ. So one justifiable question or concern that you may have, you probably have if you've been reading so far in Matthew or you're familiar with these stories, as we have the backdrop of this is the feeding of the 5,000. One justifiable question is, 
they just saw Jesus do this. You know? I mean, literally just saw this exact situation. They just saw Jesus miraculously. And they were part of the miracle in the sense that they were asked, to, like they are today, to distribute all of this food. They acknowledged the, the, the few loaves of bread, the few fish, and then they were part of the miracle after Jesus multiplies it to distribute it to the crowds. And so we can basically look at this and say, what in the world you know, is going on? These doofuses, you know, like, come on. But I think that the D.A. Carson's huge on this when he looks at this and says it's a picture of something, and I think it's helpful. He says, we have to be careful not to lose sight in light of the story of human beings' vast capacity for unbelief. And we have it. Human beings have us, people like us, have an uncanny ability for suppressing truth, for explaining away truth, the truth of the gospel especially, and miracles, for forgetfulness. That's why we need to be reminded of these things every single day because we forget every single day. Or we have an uncanny ability for reliance on the self as well, the essence of sin that's in our DNA, and we cannot, cannot pluck it out. So we have this uncanny ability, this, this default programming to go back to all of that. And so if we think here, if we, if we look at this story, and I'm one of them, so I, I'm with you guys, but if you in any way thought about this is, what a bunch of doofuses, how could they be so forgetful? We, we've missed the point if we think that at all here. Because if, if the issue is not trusting in Jesus' power, if the issue is forgetting his grace, if the issue is relying on the self and the circumstance and the situation, not on Jesus, we've all done this way more than twice, right? There's just pictures of us. So they're not idiots, they're sinners. I guess they're idiots too, but whatever. They're, but they're, not, they're, they're sinners, they're rebels. They're nearsighted wretches. They're humans, right? And so if you look at this and think, I wouldn't have done that, yes, you would have. Or some version of that. And, or actually think about it this way. You have. You are. On the way in this morning, I was doing this. I mean, before I woke up this morning, in my dreams, I was doing this. We are all in this way programmed against responding to and receiving the grace of God. This is what sin is. Going back to what I said earlier, it is, by default, being self-worshippers. It is rebelling against God, not trusting in and seeing God's grace and power as sufficient, but looking elsewhere usually to self, if not other gods of the world, to satisfy us. That's what the, the, the drama of humanity is. We've all been in that. Until God plucks us out of that, until he, he like enters into that and dies among us, the perfect for the, for the wretch, the sinner, until God does that, we, we are all, and, and just by his grace reveals that to us, we are all hopelessly programmed, like the disciples here, to, to say, where are we going to get this bread? This is impossible. All right, so that's a huge piece to this. But to go back to it, to Matthew 15, to add a spin on this, in one sense, the disciples are right here. It is impossible in human terms. It's not that they didn't do it. It's that they couldn't feed themselves. The crowds, the disciples, impossible. You cannot feed 10,000 people with just a few loaves of bread. And not just feed, like, oh, yeah, you, you could split up the little crumbs. Come on. Sat, they were satisfied. So they just eat here and got a little crumb of something. They ate to the point where they were fully satisfied. So there's clearly a miracle. But on human terms here, this is impossible. And this is part of what we have to understand about salvation biblically. Elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark, you see uh, Jesus interact with the disciples. He just got done saying, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle 
than for a person to be saved. And so the, the disciples are a little bit of an uproar, and they're anxious over this, and they're confused and scared, and they say, well, who can be saved then? And Jesus' response is, with man, this is impossible. With people, with human beings, it's impossible to be saved. But not with God. All things are possible with God. That's in Mark 10, 26 to 27. Same thing is going on here. The impossibility of the human situation in human terms, the possibility when God is at work, the possibility when Jesus does everything, the possibility when human beings do nothing and just watch and receive. So that moves us in then to the next piece here, and this is when Jesus starts to go to work. This is the back, it's almost like it's just this impetus you know, for Jesus to say, now I'm going to go to work. Now that you realize this, that it's impossible on your terms, this is when I start to work. In verses 35 and following, it says, Jesus asked the people to sit down and he breaks the bread. It says, and directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. So this is the effective miracle here, but I want you to look at verses 35. One of those verses that can get easily overlooked for the sake of when Jesus actually multiplies the bread and the fish. But in connection with what, all that we just talked about, the preceding verses on the disciples' lack of faith and the perceived impossibility of the situation, this is huge that Jesus does this. Jesus asks them to sit down. Love that. Have a seat while he does all of the work. It's the two-sided coin of, one way to understand the two-sided coin of the gospel. There are many two-sided coins, I guess, of the gospel, but this is one of them, in that Jesus does all the work, but by extension, then we do, we, we do none. We watch. We sit down. Jesus stands. We sit. Jesus works. We don't. Jesus performs his power for miracle, and we rest in that. That's the two sides of, of the one gospel coin, as we just use it as currency, so to speak, to, as we just make purchases in the kingdom of God and in the church, and as we just work out our salvation and worship and receive the truth of the gospel. That's the coin. That's the two sides of it. Jesus works, and, and we don't. Remember where we've been. Just saw this last week where the Canaanite woman fell, likely sitting at Jesus' feet to beg for help. Barrett preached uh, two weeks ago on Luke 10, Mary and Martha, the sisters who Jesus, whose house Jesus came into, and Mary being the one who sat at Jesus' feet, who didn't work like Martha, and who, as Jesus said, chose the good portion. It was right and better to just sit and listen and receive to Jesus than it was to work for him and to make the house very, very clean. Indicative of two types of spirituality, working for salvation and resting for it. This theme is everywhere in the Bible. Leon Morris says in light of today's passage, Matthew 15, once again, I love that, yet again, because this is all over the Bible, the setting for an act of heavenly magnificence is one of earthly lowliness. You guys see that? Yet again we're seeing this. This is not by far and away, not the only time we see it. But God is clear. God is big and able, and humans are small and incapable. And a lot of times in the narrative, Jesus will do something, say something, instruct the disciples or the crowds to do something to demonstrate that physically. They're sitting. Jesus is standing. They watch. Jesus does everything. You guys see the, the principle of grace here that God wants to pound into our head over and over and over again. These things are not random details. Everything's theological, including sitting down. I mean, we can, we can think about that every day, in fact. When you sit down at the end of a long workday, when you rest with your family, think about passages like this. It's not the only place sitting comes up, comes up either. 
in the Bible. Yes, we're called to stand and walk in Christ at times in Scripture as well, but we're mixing metaphors. A lot of times we sit and we just watch God work and receive from him. So what's demonstrated by that as we look at the spiritual counterpart, going back to that again, the spiritual counterpart to Matthew 15, what's being demonstrated by Jesus asking people to sit is the principle of being saved by something Jesus does, not by what we do. The crowds are not standing or participating in the multiplying of the bread and the fish. They're incapable They're being given, verse 36, the miracles. They don't manufacture it. The idea of being given something is one of the most common words in the Bible used to describe what God does with the thing of salvation in terms of exchanging it with us. It's given as a gift. It does not originate here or out here somewhere. It's always in God and God alone. We see that in verse 36. They give. And he's not just here also, not just any miracle, but in particular here, the miracle of breaking bread and fish, which is akin to the breaking of bread he would soon talk about at the Last Supper this way, which is still yet ahead here. But in Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, Luke's version of this, he says, he took bread. Also, again, when he had given thanks, he broke it. Same thing. And he gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, I'm about to go to the cross and I'm My body's going to break on the cross. It's going to be the ultimate gift, and it's given for you. Breaking of bread and giving it would have had this. It would have hearkened the disciples ahead in the story. They would have known this yet, but for us it does. Hearkens us ahead in the story to the cross where the ultimate breaking of bread takes place. Jesus being the true bread that comes from heaven, John 6 talks about. So when Jesus died on the cross, bread was breaking in an ultimate spiritual sense. Here's the encouragement. Christ stands on your behalf. Christ works on your behalf when we watch and sit. Christ multiplies what we need on our behalf when we simply look at it and receive. Rest in that. And when we pronounce things like this on a weekly basis, there's two things that I hope always happens. One, you're encouraged and released from the chains of moralism when you hear it. On the other hand, you're convicted that the God you worship is not that God that you haven't believed in a true biblical God yet, and that it's a reorienting type thing because wherever you guys are spiritually, you're probably a little bit of both of this today, at least, at least from a Christian perspective. Some of you might just be completely over here, and some of you might be having just a great week by the grace of God. Praise God. But in general, there will always be a strand of these things uh, in our life, but God's grace is stronger. So if it's over here, then there's this call to repent and believe afresh. It is not your awesomeness. It is not you. It is God's awesomeness and it's him that saves. So what that moves us into then is this last uh, clause or one of the last things he says about the actual story and it says they all ate and were satisfied. And this is actually, this is akin to a lot of the healing passages we talked about in Matthew and we're going to see some more before it's all said and done where it says he healed them all or he healed all types of afflictions. I mean, here it says they all ate, but they had so much food, they were actually full. They were all satisfied. And every single one of them ate too, not just, you know, the main leadership core of of the crew or something like that. It was every one of them, all the men, women, and children, the thousands and thousands and thousands that were there ate, and they were satisfied. Verse 37 says, they all ate and were satisfied. They took up seven baskets full, they even had leftovers of the broken pieces uh, left over. So, 
Another way of looking at the story then is to see it this way, is just to see people moving from state to state, a state of dissatisfaction to a state of satisfaction. And again, if you know the gospel, that is a picture of a great picture of another greater spiritual reality because these people were hungry again that night. And Jesus fed them here and they were satisfied, but a few hours from then, they're probably hungry for bread and fish again. And we also know there's something bigger in focus because the story doesn't end here. There is a bigger feeding like we've talked about before, and Jesus himself talks about that in much clearer terms in the Gospel of John. I'll read one place of this. John chapter 6 is big on this too. I mentioned one of those verses last week. Uh, but John 4 is clear here too in, in how Jesus connects physical water with the spiritual water he gives us on the cross. John 4, 13 to 14. Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is really clear here. It's more implicit in, in passages like Matthew 15, but it's very clear. There's physical water, and there's a giving of physical water and physical food that Jesus engages in many times in his ministry, but it's always with one eye in the future where there's a different kind of water, a better water, a better food that he will give us later. And it pertains to eternal life. It's spiritual. It's the removal of sin. It's the overwhelming of death. It pertains to that. That is, like, biblically speaking, that's like water. That's like food. Because it nourishes the soul. So God can care for the physical dimension and does care for the physical dimension of the human experience. But he cares all the more for the spiritual dimension because that is the greater need. Uh, Peter Carlson used a, used a great phrase. It was back in Matthew 8, I think, right? Matthew 8 or 9 when he preached. Um, when Jesus used the phrase triage care. It's a great phrase. You know, when you're going for triage care, they focus on the biggest problem first. When there's a few problems like in an ER... What's the biggest issue first, the biggest problem first? And Jesus hones in on that. You see him do this time and time again in the scriptures. He can focus on the peripheral, the symptoms, but what's the main cancer? I mean, what's the big issue? What's the organ failure here that, that needs to be addressed first? And that is that sin. That's that we don't have eternal life, that we are banished from God, that we are bent towards a literal forever hell that extends our banishment from God on spiritual and physical terms way more than it is now, and it's never-ending. Jesus sees that problem, and of course he's going to speak to that. Of course he's going to address that. Of course he's not going to end here, right? In feeding thousands of people physically, but then have them be hungry again a few hours later. Of course he's going to keep teaching with his eyes set on Jerusalem uh, to, keep, to keep going. And what I love about it too, what's especially hope-giving about all of this is, you know, Jesus is saying these things, these types of John 4 things and demonstrating these types of Matthew 15 things against the backdrop of nothing in the world satisfying enduringly. Nothing. Here he's saying it to a woman who's seeking satisfaction in sex and in relationships and not finding it. He's saying it to her. You'll be thirsty again after you drink this later, but I have water for you that you've never heard of. If you believe in me, it'll be water that you'll drink. You'll never, ever be thirsty again the rest of your life. It's wonderfully hope-giving. But if the background again is, and we've all experienced this as human beings, if you experience this more than your neighbor, you're going to feel it more. If nothing satisfied you enduringly, and then against the foreground of that, Jesus says, I have water that will, that will always nourish you forever and ever and ever. It's wonderfully hope-giving, right? Ecclesiastes is a great book to read on this, by the way. We preached this book uh, three years ago now, I think it was. We were starting about this time. 
One of my favorite sermon series we've ever done here, and probably always will be. I love that book. I love just what it did for us as a community, how it helped us to view the world in both vain, but also the gift of God ways. And can't go on back into all that today, but one of the main messages of this Old Testament book is, it's clear, everything in the world is vain. Even really great things. Marriage is vain. Having kids is vain. Helping the poor is vain. He just basically lists all these things and says, everything has this degree of vanity or futility to it, and nothing satisfies us. And the guy who wrote it was King Solomon, who is clear. Part of the book is testimonial. Like he argues these things in chapter one, then he goes right into his story and says, I'm firsthand evidence of this because I'm king. I'm the wisest guy around. He had that as a gift from God. And all these things are in themselves evil. They're just not God. So they're always going to fail to satisfy. But wisest guy around, he says, Right in there in chapter 2, he says this really great phrase. He says, nothing my heart wanted, I denied. For everything my heart wanted, I said yes to. Can you imagine that, by the way? Like, if you had had the resources for that, scary, right? I mean, if you're honest with yourself, scary. But he did this for years and years. Everything he wanted, he had 700 wives, all kinds of sex, all kinds of women, food, the land. He mentions fame. He mentions laughter, even, just humor. He mentions riches. list goes on and on. This is from, all from chapter 2. He, and then he says he had absolutely everything the world had to offer, but then at the end, all was vanity. It did not satisfy. So he's arguing these things from chapter 1 in a big picture sense, but then saying, I'm test case for this. I'm, I'm, I'm case A for this. That my, I, I said yes to everything. And most people he's writing to weren't able to say yes to everything. They have the resources for that. But he says, just trust me. Nothing in the world satisfies. And again, it doesn't mean that everything's evil. Food is good if we see it as a gift from God. But if we make it God, and if we try to find satisfaction in it, we're going to be hungry three hours later. And the re- repetitious cycle of that will demonstrate it is not good enough. It is not taking care of us. Whenever you go back to something, the Bible says, it's a demonstration of that not being God. Repetition, biblically, is a picture of vanity and failure. Because when Jesus comes on the scene, it's clear he died once for all. Jesus did not have to die a second time or a third time or a millionth time. He did it one time, and it's enduringly satisfying. And the water of that, when we drink, we never thirst again. So, again, the backdrop of repetition, the backdrop of vanity, the backdrop of everything in the world not working Along comes Jesus, who has the authority, maybe even the audacity, you could say, to say, whoever drinks of my water will never be thirsty again. Which, by the way, good people don't say stuff like that. This is God saying this. This is not just a guy in the street. People, he's lunatic, right, would say this. Who drinks of my water will never be thirsty again. But God has the authority and the truthfulness and the power to say this and actually mean it. He's God. He's not just a guy. He's not just a teacher. He came to become like us without losing any of his deity. He's the God-man who advocated for us on the cross and who gave us that ultimate water to drink from, to save us from our sins. The ultimate cancer, the ultimate picture of vanity that is in our soul. So the invitation of the gospel, then I'll end with this, is, I think, from Matthew 15, is to sit down. Sit down. A lot of you guys are standing up before God thinking you're great. Get over yourself. Sit down. It's not about you. Sit on the grasses. Sit, on the de- sit in the desolate place. You're weary. You might not even know it. Sit down. Stop the charade. Stop striving after the wind. 
Stop the performance. Stop seeking the approval of men. Stop pleasing God with your own awesomeness. Stop trying to find satisfaction in sex and food and fame and money and children. Whatever it is, it's not, it's not working for you. And you might be in this cycle where you think it is, but the fact that there's a time, maybe at the end of the day or the end of the week, or it's coming for you where it won't satisfy as much anymore, could be the best of things that life has to offer. When you get to that moment, don't stop listening to the voice of God in that moment. Because what he's saying to you is, this isn't working. Maybe it's a gift from God to recognize. Do that. Praise God for all, being the giver of all good gifts. But look past it to the gift giver and worship him and find satisfaction in him. That's the invitation. One of the great things about the cross is that it's not just a fact. It's a spiritual reality that actually satisfies us and makes us whole again. It says, you're loved to the uttermost by a God who died for you. And nothing you can do for the rest of your life can add to that. And nothing you do for the rest of your life can subtract from that. I mean, if you really get that, most freeing thing you'll ever hear. Most freeing thing I've ever heard in my life. If you apply that way of thinking to your life, and I'm going way past your feelings, by the way. We talk about, are you satisfied in God? Feelings are, are important, but they will follow the facts of the gospel. I want to take you past your, wherever you feel about that statement, am I satisfied in God today? Go past that and look at the facts of the gospel, which is like John 4 stuff, which is to say, this is what Christ promises me if I believe. Look at the cross itself. This is what the ultimate feeding, the ultimate drink giving was. It's historical and it's theological and it's, again, doxological, meaning it's a place to worship and give God glory. Not just history, actually happened in the world and it pertains to you and me right now today. So that any way your view of God is not in line with this demonstration of these amazing grace-filled truths in Matthew 15, it's just a place to, to repent, to turn, and to sit down and to receive from God. It's not about you working out your salvation before God on your own strength. It, just, it's, it's, it is the resounding message of the Bible here, demonstrated in a shadowy manner, but still there. The grace of God and the people and, our, and, and the works idea are juxtaposed all the time in the scriptures. Looked at a few of them today, but just everywhere. It, it is the mantra of the Bible. It is the main thread of the scriptures. Seeing both, God is great and we are not. John the Baptist, God must increase, we must decrease. God's got to get big, we got to get small. The grace of God gets huge. When my sin gets bigger, it makes me see I'm a lot lower than I think. It's everywhere. Rest in that today. Some of you guys are not Christians today. And maybe you're just realizing that for the first time today. If that's the case, Sit down and rest at the feet of Christ. Some of you are anxious because you're, you're living as though it's about you and you're competing with other Christians. You're competing with people next to you. It's about you. It's about performance. It's about making the, seeking the approval of people. The gospel frees you from that. If you believe that God loves you as you are, as a sinner, that while you're sinners, Christ died for you, if you really believe that and apply that, you, you, you will, not perfectly in this life by no means, but you will, be, you will have the tool that God gives to set you free. There is no 10-step book out there to free you from anxiety. It's Jesus. He's the answer. He's not just giving us the answers. He actually is the answer. He proposes that I am the answer to your, to your anxiety. I and what I do am the answer to your depression. I am the answer to your sexual sin. I am the answer to your propensity to compete with other people and to be arrogant in that. I am the answer to your moralism. And the answer to all of that, he, he is the answer. And before him, questions start to fade because it's not about figuring out this great mathematical formula. It's just about gazing 
at the beauty of the cross and, and, and taking notice and sitting and believing, having faith in that. So I invite you guys to do that as we close. And if you want to talk about that, you know, afterwards with someone that you came with here, do that. Don't wait. Uh, today is the day of salvation, Paul says. And this might be the day for the rest of your life. This is the day God is getting a hold of your heart to turn, to repent, to believe for the first time and actually to believe that Christ feeds you, you don't. Uh, do that as we respond with these a couple of songs. But I'll pray before that. So let's pray. God, thank you uh, for today, for your grace in the gospel of Christ, for Matthew 15, and what it tells us about you and the cross, what it tells us about the spiritual food that your body provides for us, being broken and bloodied on a crooked cross among criminals, the scandal of scandals, the abomination of desolation, as the scriptures call it. The, 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 the biggest evil, God dying in a cursed manner on a cross. Yet you worked through that to lay our sin on your son, God. You, you worked through that to bring about the greatest of all goods, the salvation. And the, the glory of God to the uttermost and the salvation of all those who trust. And that is sufficient as ultimate bread and water. Uh, God, help us to respond, maybe for the first time in years, uh, as Christians, to that message out of joy, thankfulness, and peace and freedom. Or for the first time here, people are just approaching the cross, being approached by you, the God-man who's coming to the world to chase them down and to show them how much you love them because you are unwilling to send them away faint. Praise God. That's the case. Uh, we praise you for this beautiful picture we get of you in the Bible. and Just bless us as we go from here today and respond. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Yes, let's stand.